Hello and welcome back to the podcast of ideas from the team here at the Academy of Ideas. I'm Jacob Reynolds and today we'll be digging into the economic turmoil uh, that's been unleashed since Liz Truss's recent mini budget. If you keep up with our newsletter at the Academy of Ideas, which uh, you'll know we recently moved over onto Substack, you'll know that the economic turmoil from the energy crisis to inflation, this has been a kind of major preoccupation of ours for some time. And today we want to not lose sight of that broader context, how we got here, but also understand a little bit more precisely what is triggering the current headlines and what they all mean. So to help us navigate this, I'm delighted to be joined by two regulars of all things economic here at the Academy of Ideas. So a welcome first to Phil Mullen, who's a writer, lecturer and business manager. He's the author um, of two books important to our discussion today. One is called Beyond Confrontation, Globalists, Nationalists and Their Discontents, and also a book called Creative Destruction, How to Start an Economic Renaissance. Uh, and he's also a regular author of Economic Long Reads over on Spiked. So welcome to you, Phil. Good afternoon. And I'm also joined by my colleague, Rob Lyons, who's the Science and Technology Director of the Academy of Ideas and the convener of the Academy of Ideas Economy Forum, which meets regularly to discuss issues related to the economy. So thanks to you, Rob. Hi, hi Jacob. So, I mean, Rob, if I can start with you, I mean, these have been some serious uh, headlines we've seen over the last week. And I mean, after Kwasi Kwarteng announced the details of the mini budget, which, as people I'm sure are aware, included tax cuts galore, as well as detailed the government's enormous financial commitments in terms of fixing energy prices for consumers. I mean, ever since then, the government has been battling what seems like a real succession of market crises from huge moves in the value of the pound to sharply increased interest rates on government borrowing. Um, And so intense has been all this market reaction that many kind of politicos here in Westminster are kind of forecasting already the almost premature end of Liz Truss's government. So, I mean, Rob, can you talk us through, I mean, why did markets seem to get so spooked? Why has this provoked such a economic and kind of political fallout for Liz Truss? I suppose there's, there's, there's very proximate causes and there's slightly less proximate causes. The very proximate causes are a couple of things that happened last week. Uh, first of all, the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee uh, voted to raise interest rates by 0.5%. Now, actually, that's a, the biggest rise, I believe, since 2008. And it's the seventh rise in a row that they've uh, voted for. But the markets were expecting a bit more, 0.75%. Um, also, the uh, Bank of England said that I said that the UK economy is in recession and that it was going to start the process of unwinding quantitative easing. Um, so these three things together were, were fairly major moves. But the fact that the, the interest rate rise was smaller than expected and actually, uh, in general, the, the Bank of England has been cautious, relatively cautious this year on interest rate rises, um, certainly gave the message that perhaps the, the Bank of England wasn't as serious about tackling inflation as perhaps some people in the market were hoping for. But then the the icing on the cake was Kwasi Kwarteng's um, mini-budget or fiscal event, um, which is probably nearer the mark in terms of the reaction. Uh, And a lot of what he said was had already been flagged up. The government had already said it was going to introduce an energy price guarantee. 
It uh, had already said that it was going to reverse the, the rise in national insurance that Rishi Sunak had proposed, um, and also said that it wasn't going to go through with the rise in corporation tax that which he had announced. But then he pulled a couple of rabbits out of the bag, uh, in particular the uh, decision to scrap the highest rate of income tax, which is paid by people over, pay, earning over £150,000 a year. And that... Um, just the, the, the general message from the, the speech was, we are going to aggressively cut taxes, as far as the market is concerned, um, but we're not laying out any plans about how we're going to pay for that other than by borrowing it. And at the weekend, Kwarteng added to that mood by saying that more tax cuts were to come. So by Monday morning, the Asian markets priced the pound as low as a dollar and three cents. And um, there was a, the, the rise of the price of gilts led by, I think, Wednesday to fears that certain pension funds would go under because they're out of instruments, slightly risky instruments they're using called LDIs. And basically the Bank of England then had to announce it was reversing its decision on quantitative tightening and so going back to buying bonds again to, keep, to prop up these uh, pension funds and to stop a systemic risk on them falling over. So that's the that's what's happened in the past few days. As it happens, the pound has now recovered most of its losses the last time I looked. Um, as um, perhaps the the markets are feeling a, a little bit like things are happening to kind of uh, reassure them. Um, the slightly less proximate cause is the fact that the the U.S. Federal Reserve has been much more aggressive about raising interest rates this year. Um, and as a result of that, the dollar is strengthening and the other currencies like the pound, but also the euro have weakened greatly. So the euro fell below parity with the dollar a couple of weeks ago, and it's now, I think, at like 96 cents, which is quite a steep fall. So it's not just sterling. It's, this is going on in the context of a, of a wider push against um, inflation, of which the, the, the dollar has been the, the main beneficiary as the Federal Reserve has been much more aggressive. Um, but the, the broader picture, and I think Phil will probably discuss this more, is that these things matter because of the, the ongoing weakness of the UK economy. And yeah, before we just do go on to that uh, broader context, I wondered if either of you had any thoughts about the kind of reaction, not just of financial markets, but also of financial institutions. I'm thinking particularly in terms of the IMF coming out and saying that this they, this is not the kind of, kind of budget that they'd have advised. And you almost feel that there's a succession of, uh, those kind of relative people in relative positions of power in the kind of international financial world who had decided for for reasons maybe to do with economic prudence but also maybe to do with dislike of uh Liz Truss's kind of economic beliefs that they were going to come out and kind of make not just financial moves but also statements against uh against their choices and I mean lots of people have already pointed out that this is this is slightly redolent of when uh, during the, the kind of Brexit negotiations and during the whole process of Brexit, you had these international financial bodies coming out and trying to kind of hamstring what the UK government could um, and couldn't do. do. Do either of you have any thoughts on this? Do, do you think that comparison to the, the Brexit moment is is fair or, or, or any other thoughts on that? I think you're right to say that uh, a lot of the what you could call sort of the, the globalist international institutions were waiting for an opportunity to have a bash at a government which... They've been berating ever since uh, ever since Johnson took over and said that he would get Brexit done. 
I mean, we know that Liz Truss was a was a, initially a Remainer, but uh, in her election campaigning for uh, the leadership of the Tory party and for becoming the next the, the current prime minister, she said she would pursue that agenda. And uh, people, these institutions have never have never forgiven not so much the government, but really unforgiven the British people for 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 voting to pull out of the most developed uh, uh, globalist uh, organization in the world, namely the European Union. So in that sense, I think, you know, there was a, a sort of an inclination to uh, bash this new government as soon as it uh, made a faux pas. And uh, <laughs> unfortunately, as we've seen, um, this government has made a very, very big one in the way that it uh, came up with this high expectation growth plan, which then turned into, uh, you know, not just a damp squib, but turned into a, you know, it, it was really a very sketchy, flimsy, insubstantial, I'd say, I'd argue counterproductive, as well as poorly explained budget. And uh, that was like an open goal for for all these organisations to have a go and say how, uh, how terrible and incompetent this government is. So its own incompetence did actually allow then this hyperbole um, which we've seen, and uh, you know, you stress the IMF, Jacob, very rightly. This, you know, quite unprecedented intervention into a G7 economy of basically telling them what they should be doing as a government. You know, people have got used to the IMF throwing its weight around in in uh, uh, less developed countries and in emerging markets, as they call them. But it's unusual for them to be so forthright in uh, their criticism of this uh, of, of a, a developed economy. Uh, in the group of seven. So, uh, you know, just completely anti-democratic, you know, it's it plays to the anti-democratic tendencies of all these globalist institutions that they don't care what British people want. Uh, you know, they are the ones who are the um, uh, the judge and uh, these, in a sense, the executioner um, in terms of criticising what the government did last week. We talked a little bit about the deeper kind of drivers of what's going on. And Rob rightly noted that the UK kind of entered this scenario uh, in a relatively poor position, economically speaking. And you've, I mean, one of the interesting things that you and other people, but you've written a lot over the years about how the UK has, I mean, very serious, deep-rooted economic problems that people uh, kind of given up on trying to figure out ways to grow the British economy and what we really need is is growth. Um, and in a way, wasn't, I mean, this trust from the outset said, hey, what we need is growth. We need to grow the British economy. We re and she didn't quite go as far as saying we recognise that we have huge structural, deep-rooted economic problems. But she kind of the implication was that the UK needed something kind of serious um, because we needed to go for growth. But you already have said that these weren't kind of really they weren't really serious um, solutions. So well, I mean, what did she get wrong? Why do our problems seem so hard to fix? Um, because they go back a long way, and they do require a, uh, a, a sort of a reset in economic thinking, which uh, goes beyond uh, uh, the rhetoric of saying, uh, let's um, you know, break from economic orthodoxies and do something different. She said it would be radical, and Kwartang said it would be radical. But if you want to be radical, then you've got to get to, to in, in terms of the classical definition of the word radical, you've got to go to the roots of the problem. And what they, that's objectively what they did not do. Um, so I was very welcoming of their focus on growth. Um, uh, you know, I thought that was a good theme for trust to push as, as indicative of a, uh, a, of a fresh approach. But unfortunately, it wasn't matched by any fresh economic or you know, intellectual thinking as to how to uh, restore growth. Uh, and I think that's 
you know, the sort of the, the one of the contributors, not just to what the IMF or other globalist institutions have done, but also uh, in terms of people, uh, uh, which is, I think, is more even more important than the financial markets, but people's uh, reaction to this budget, that expect expectations were set during the summer, that something different and radical was going to be offered. Um, the argument, or not the argument, but the, the claim that economic growth and the restoration of economic growth would be a means to be able to resolve lots of other problems. I think that is essentially right. And people heard that when I say problems, problems of stretched public services, problems of stagnant living conditions, problems of low quality jobs and so on. All those things could be addressed uh, on the basis of a bigger, as we say, a bigger cake being created uh, rather than um, the uh, a very very slow growing cake of the of the last period, and that expectation was set was that they were going to grab this problem of uh, sluggish growth of really productivity stagnation over the last ten years and do something about it. But having done that, uh, uh, setting up the discussion to then rush into this uh, uh, mini budget uh, and offer very little more than um, tax cuts, or not even tax cuts, if we actually look at it. It was arguing, or the the, the, uh, the announcements, and Truss had said this over the summer, was simply to reverse uh, planned tax increases and to take national insurance contributions back to where they were at the uh, early part of this year. So, and that was what came across from Kwasi Kwarteng, the, 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 the new chancellor, as the substance of this plan for growth. Remember, yeah, you can call it a fiscal event or a mini budget or a budget or whatever, but it was flagged up by them as a plan for growth. Uh, and there's an accompanying document on that as well, which, which doesn't go all that much further than what he said. But by the fact that he focused on two things, uh, or rather primarily on, on, on two tax cuts with a bit of income tax tweaking, um, wasn't really credible to anyone. I mean, how could you think that returning taxes to where they were earlier this year would somehow kickstart uh, business animal spirits and investment and and drive up productivity growth. I um, mean that is um, uh, you know a delusion. That is you know a, a, you know the definition of fantasy economics that uh, that people have been talking about. So the expectation was raised that they're going to do something growth and it was dashed. So why is that? You're saying well yeah they, I don't think they've got to grips with how grave the economic situation is and that unites. This new government with its predecessors, and it unites this new government with all its critics as well, whether they're, you know, economic commentators or political commentators or the Labour Party, or whatever, that they're all seemingly obsessed by the issues of the present without seeing that, say, something like this financial storm of this week, the convulsions are, uh, in the markets, uh, that, that the roots of that go back a, a very long time. Uh, and that's what a serious approach to uh, uh, planning for growth would have to start with. Because if you can't identify what the roots of the problem are, the roots of why investment is not taking place, and uh, the, this government accepts that that's at the core of the productivity problem, businesses are not investing in new technology and new innovation. But if you simply think that that can be transformed by you know, uh, uh, keeping taxes where they were effectively and, 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 uh, and a few other tweaks, then that is a, a failure to grasp the gravity of what is holding back uh, businesses from investing. I think that, that there was a lot of talk in, um, in Liz Truss's uh, leadership campaign and, and since then about, about sort of tearing up regulation and whatnot. And um, do you, 
but that actually it's been very much tempered by provisos, as it were. So, uh, for example, uh, one of the things the government's announced is uh, ending the moratorium on fracking. That's a good thing uh, because that sounds like they're getting serious about energy supply at a time when the fact that there's not enough gas to go around for the world is um, is a major problem at the moment. But with uh, with the proviso that um, it would only go ahead if the geologist said it's safe and if there's local consent. And she got hammered on the radio when she did her round of interviews yesterday by what, what I think was Radio Lancashire saying, well, what does local consent mean? And she couldn't really answer the question. Um, so it, the, the idea that simply declaring that fracking is now legal again doesn't actually get any gas out of the ground. So there's that. And then and other things, for example, like there is a, a, a real problem in the UK of housing, house prices going up rapidly and far too much capital is being devoted to uh, quick wins on, on the, the rising price of, of housing. And also it just makes the cost of doing business much more expensive as well, because you, if you're going to have um, employees living in the right part of the country to, to work for your company, they need to live somewhere. And there's nothing to be said about that either, or about uh, how there's going to be a transformative uh, building of houses. Um, so the rhetoric is good, but even on those two examples, the, the follow-through isn't that great. I was, in terms of sort of adjusting the economy back to something like normality, the one good thing is the the, the sort of trend towards rising interest rates, because it has been the ultra-low cost of borrowing and the ease of which of getting credit that has propped up so many companies that are not productive and that um, and and get and having that sort of as Phil describes um, in his book uh, creative destruction you you need that sort of you need uh, poorly performing companies to leave the scene uh, as a starting point to start ra- raising productivity in general and at the moment those companies have been propped up for a very long time, by the ease of which they are able to get credit and just keep themselves ticking over, but no more than that. I was actually, I did want to ask kind of both of you about that question about interest rates, because it seems to me that this is one of the really tough nuts to crack, because you can say, as you explained, Rob, that you need, the interest rates have to return to a more kind of historically uh, consistent level and what we've experienced over the last year has been very abnormal. But then as they increase, we now read all the headlines about how lots of mortgages might become really unaffordable for people. And as you say, with so much money, so much of people's money in the UK, especially tied up in the cost of their homes and servicing their mortgages, is it going to be really, really difficult to continue raising interest rates? And will that just kind of end up depressing people's spending power and uh, consumer power so that any kind of uh, any kind of economic renewal is going to be really hard for people to kind of stomach because all their money is tied up in increasingly uh, un- unaffordable mortgages. Yeah, I think it's going to be extremely tough times ahead in the way that you've described. Uh, and I think that's when I say that um, there's a lack of intellectual imagination to understand what the roots of it is. It also is a lack of um, uh, recognition of the, uh, the the sort of the quagmire that we are in, right? That there's no simple way out of the mess that we are out of today's economic malaise because we have, I mean, you could say a twin problem of as uh, uh, as we've discussed a low growth situation, but we combine that with very high debts. Um, this way, I think Rob was right to stress the uh, when, when he was uh, explaining what's going on even this week that it's the 
policy changes or the policy dilemmas of the Bank of England, which are well worth exploring in this. Because what we've had in terms of uh, 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 explaining why we've got both high debt and low growth and why that's a, a very, a, a very um, difficult duality to get out of is that we have what I would call, or which other people call also the, the debt trap. That over the last sort of decades, really, but particularly since the financial crisis, we've covered up, not consciously, but the way the system works, it's covered up the low growth problem, the productivity problem, um, by enabling debt to increase to an extent to which that it, it allows um, uh, uh, the flat incomes, the flat creation of wealth, the lack of creation of wealth to be, to be masked. Effectively, businesses and households and governments now as well can keep trucking along based on borrowing from the future rather than creating wealth in the present. But that's created then a legacy for us, um, which the Bank of England is now grappling with. That if you've had, not if you've had, as we've had, not just in Britain, but in America and other advanced economies, if we've had this very, as we've had this very, very low uh, level of interest rates, we've had this, uh, what's called these ultra easy monetary policies, so you can borrow relatively easily and cheaply, then that builds up this debt, which creates this debt trap. Because if so much, so many households, so many businesses, so many governments are debt dependent, are reliant on new debt, not just the debt from that, but new debt, new borrowing to keep going, then that puts a real constraint then on ever ending the ultra easy monetary policies. That's why if you remember those policies, go back you know, 12, 14 years, these were quantitative easing was an emergency measure taken in the midst of the financial crash. But every year when it came to sort of trying to work out, well, the Bank of England and, and the other central banks were trying to work out how to reverse it, they realized that by increasing rates, they were going to create problems because all those indebted bodies across the board were going to find it very difficult to be able to go cope. Today, Jacob, you've stressed the mortgages. Yes, people have been on fixed rate mortgages of what, a couple of percent, some even one, one, one and a half percent. The mortgage rate up until last week, I think, was 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 now up to the deals were up to four percent. Uh, and now people are talking about rates of once the, the, the mortgage market stabilizes after the uh, 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 turmoil of this week, maybe it's five, six percent, even more. I heard people being quoted 10 percent for mortgages. So that's a situation where those people are going to be impossible to 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 pay such a jump in mortgage rates. But that's a symptom of a wider economy which is trapped by debt. And the Bank of England has been aware of that, which is why it and other central banks has been so reluctant to increase interest rates over the last 10 years up until uh, last year and inflation took off. They felt they had to do something. But by doing something, they've brought to the fore this problem of, of, of the debt problem. And that's, and that's you know, you can, you can pinpoint that as the, the complacency that Trust and Quartang had last week. They've sort of, when you look at this high debt, low growth um, uh, predicament, They've seen the low growth part and said, oh, well, let's try and do something about that. And in a sense, shrugged off the high debt side as if there's something that can just be you know, easily, easily managed. But those two things interact in a way which makes it very difficult to, to, to get out of this situation. And that's why I think the, the mistake, the political mistake they made was to just be so complacent to think that the debt problems, whether for households or for businesses or for the government's own debt, that those things can be so easily managed uh, indicates their uh, you know, lack, of, lack of substance to their understanding of, of what's going on in the economy.
I think it has political implications as well, but perhaps we'll get on to that. Well, yeah, I mean, talking about uh, politics, I mean, the, one of the notable things is the way that not only does the government kind of lack a direct mandate because it wasn't it hasn't yet gone to the voters, but I mean, broadly, one of the things we need, if, if the scale of the problems are as we suggest... And also the kind of the scale of the adjustment necessary to fixing those problems is, is as we suggest. Well, one of the things you've always called for, uh, Phil, is well more genuine public discussion of uh, of these issues. And because ultimately we're going to have to kind of figure out a, a way through this. But also we need to hold our politicians collectively to account for being so kind of ideas light and uh, and not driven by ideas. And that, and to me. Right now, that's very exciting because we at the Academy of Ideas are in the midst of uh, final preparations for the Battle of Ideas Festival, which is on the 15th and 16th of October at Church House in Westminster. Everybody who hasn't got their tickets yet must go to the Battle of Ideas website, which is battleofideas.org.uk, um, and get your tickets there. Not least because we have a, a large number of discussions this year, two uh, whole strands over, over a couple of days, devoted to economic and uh, cost of living issues. I mean, Rob, you've put together a lot of these uh, discussions. You've been busy getting them ready and have booked some really great speakers. Can you give us a little bit of a flavour of what's to come in the festival? Yeah, so I mean, one of the opening sessions of the festival is called uh, From Stagnation to Inflation, How to Be Revolutionised in the Economy, which uh, uh, I'm chairing and Phil's one of the speakers. Um, we also have the economist of the moment, Gerard Lyons, on that panel as well. Um, as well as uh, Laurie Labour, who's a sort of a green think tanker, and uh, Matt Ridley, who's written a book about innovation. And so I think that's really going to set out the stall about, about taking a step back from what's happened in the past week or the past month and trying to say, well, what do we need to do to actually sort of get out, get out of this uh, situation? Well, we've got a whole bunch of different sessions as well, looking at more specific things as well. Um, We've got a, a, another broad session actually called Can We Fix Britain um, on Sunday the 16th. But we also have specific sessions on net zero and whether that's economically a sensible idea. Um, we have um, a discussion on the, the housing problem, which I've mentioned earlier, um, through, through to things like uh, how do we respond to the cost of living crisis? I mean, beyond just letting the politicians uh, and the economists and the traders uh, talk about this. How do we as individuals and collectively respond to this as well um, so that we, we don't see our living standards being hammered? Uh, and also we've got um, discussions on things like work. For example, one of the big discussions of the past year or so is about labour shortages and also about people's reactions to the world of work and what you know that we've just we talk of the great resignation of people um leaving work at an earlier age than they would have done in the past um and just generally feeling like uh, that they no longer uh, love the, the world of work so there's lots of different angles on which we're, we're looking at the different facets of the state of the economy and of economic life more generally um, across the two days of the festival. Yeah, thanks, Rob. And it's, it's definitely worth checking out all those sessions ahead of the festival if you want to find out more about what we're covering. And as Rob alluded to, we've got some really great speakers, but genuinely a kind of reflective uh, and wide range of people from all across the spectrum. We've got uh, people from trade unions through to financial journalists. We've got some traditional thinkers of the Tory right, as well as some more radical thinkers from the left. So I, I do urge everyone to kind of go and check that out. Um, 
But the, the Battle of Ideas Festival is not, of course, just going to be about the economy. We've got sessions on everything from the war in Ukraine to the increasingly vicious debates about um, gender identity. But another big theme this year, which really, I think, sits alongside the, uh, the theme of the economy, is about the way the world is shifting internationally. So I wondered if, while we have you, Phil, we might be able to just talk very quickly about the about how profound shifts in international politics and the international economic picture have kind of fed into or might be kind of driving some of these more uh, domestic issues and, and budgets and all the rest of it. And I mean, to be more precise, I mean, this trust comes and becomes prime minister at a moment when uh, we're living, you might say, in a very much changed international paradigm. People will be familiar with the examples. Germany, for example, facing huge uh, economic questions as perhaps the supply of Russian gas, which has fueled its economy in many respects, is kind of being turned off. Um, the consequences of the energy crisis across all the rest of the countries in Europe. Um, the shockwaves that uh, Rob talked about with America kind of, uh, and the, the policy of the American Fed in terms of raising interest rates. That there's a kind of a huge, and we haven't even, we haven't even talked about, say, the more familiar issues like the rise of China and, and all the rest of it. Um, but what this does seem to me is a, a moment of kind of huge international uh, uncertainty. Um, and alongside getting serious about the economy, does this trust also need to kind of get serious about understanding where and if Britain can kind of find its place in the world? Your book, Phil, obviously is called Beyond Confrontation, your most recent book, but is not confrontation kind of putting aside the uh, issues with Russia, but is not confrontation kind of more likely in some shape or form in, in, in the coming months and years? Uh, you're, you're quite right to say we're in a much more uh, serious situation than we were three or four years ago. I mean, I think the uh, the, the relationship or what, what unites sort of the, the geopolitical uncertainties and uh, disorders at the moment and the what's going on in the economy is the way in which these sort of shocks that we've had, so-called shocks of the last few years from the pandemic to the, 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 the impact of the lockdowns and then the openings up. Rob's been talking about in terms of the energy crisis, the failure to invest in energy for years and years and years uh, in terms of cheap and reliable energy. And then what's happened with the uh, the war in, in Ukraine, all that sort of brought to the fore, I think, and brought to the surface trends which were there uh, uh, before. And I think that's one of the themes which I'm sure will be discussed at the, at the, at the festival, the way in which uh, it's not as if we're just in a new era and the sort of from page zero or, or you know, from, from, yeah, from page zero, something's simply changed um, uh, uh, and everything is now different. But the important thing is to see how... Uh, those uh, the current the current con conjuncture is a product of the uh, of the past, and in fact, I think it's not so much just an economic and a political question, but also it's a, it's a cultural question, which I'm sure will be coming up in in a number of the sessions. That this uh, demonization of history, which we have, and the fashionable perspectives of the cultural elites, is something which is actually making it more difficult to address the geopolitical, political, and economic problems because they're all looked at from uh, at the present as if there's just something which has happened which has which has blown up recently whether putin being uh, you know particularly authoritarian or whether it's um accident of a natural phenomenon like the covid virus you know that that something has just happened which has created all this conjuncture today rather it's important for us to see uh, the the historical roots of this uh, and that's i think a very important cultural problem which we have to confront um uh, as well i think the other side of that the other thing which unites the political and the economic questions is that there's no solution to them um, unless we do widen out 
the uh, uh, the the discussion of ideas and the battle of ideas to involve uh, the ordinary people, to involve the public. And I know that's always a theme of of the battle of ideas festival. But I think more than ever, um, the sort of uh, sessions which are being put on, which which we've touched on a, on, a, on a few of them, the importance of extending that debate in a way in which brings people back in to the political square. And I think you know, that is also something which was uh, very blatantly, uh, in a sense, denied by what the new government has done in the last few weeks uh, by simply announcing these things without um, explaining and discussing and engaging people in the sort of destructive, disruptive and destructive steps which have to be taken to get out of this mess. It's, it's another example of a sort of top-down, oh, we've got this thought, you know, let's, uh, let's uh, talk more about supply side, let's talk more about tax cuts, let's do a bit of here and there. Um, but the people who are going to suffer this, whether through their mortgage rates or through potentially, if, if uh, as Rob said, uh, more and more businesses go bust because of the, the problems of their debt uh, dependence with rising rates, people losing their jobs and so on, that uh, it, it's going to be uh, people who are suffering this. And therefore, people need to be part of the solution, uh, not just part of the solution. They need to lead the solution, which starts from understanding what is going on and what the next steps could be to get out of it. Yeah, thanks for that, Phil. I mean, you rightly point out a large number of uh, other sessions. I mean, there's one that I'm really looking forward to where we'll be looking at um, whether we're seeing the kind of end of globalism. And as we put it, has Davos man had his day, which I think reflects some of those themes of the, the question of what, what what does it mean for the global economy to kind of cohere itself? Do the those institutions we talked about, like the IMF or the World Economic Forum, do they kind of really command the same role that they used to? And how are the global kind of technocrats responding to populism in, in this moment? So again, urge everybody to head to the website, battleofideas.org.uk. Go and check out some of the sessions. Most importantly, go and get yourself a ticket. There are great discounts on tickets for students and concessions and uh, various uh, various other things there. But the tickets are for, you can get them for a weekend or you can just uh, come along for the day. But predominantly, this is a real opportunity for people from all walks of life as the Battle of Ideas Festival always is to come together hear from some interesting thinkers and speakers but most importantly for us ourselves to kind of get involved in the debate and try and figure a way out not just of our economic malaises but also our political and cultural ones too so we all i'm sure really hope to see you there and look forward to that conversation thanks a lot